You're listening to a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit. Um, Thank you so much for coming. This is a panel that is going to be looking at the transition away from fossil fuels. So this is the discussion around communities as they take a stance against um, coal, against gas and new projects. We're going to look at what's working, um, what we can be doing better and how that will change under the climate emergency framework. I just want to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land that we're meeting on for this summit. It's the people of the Kulin Nations and just want to acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Now, we're really excited and we're really, really fortunate to be here because we've got this incredible panel to speak today about the transition away from fossil fuels. Everyone up here has so much expertise. They're all doing their bit, different le- like using different levers, basically, to enact this change. And so I'll just start to, as well, myself. My name is Joe Lauder. I'm a radio reporter and producer on Hack, which is a current affairs show on Triple J. And so our focus is looking at news and current affairs for young people. And we know that this is a huge issue for young people. And we know just for our audience in the last 12 months, this has gone from being the fourth most important issue to the number one issue that they say is affecting their lives. And so they say it's more important than um, getting a job, housing and mental health. And that's happened in the space of one year. So I think that kind of shows just how much the conversation is changing. And so joining us up here today to start with, we've got Julian Vincent. Julian is the Executive Director of Market Forces, which is a small climate activist group that advocates the boycotts of fossil fuels, fossil fuel companies. Um, Before that, Julian was an environmental campaigner and activist with Greenpeace, and he's been doing this work for over a decade. And Julian's also the reason why Scott Morrison is up here, so he can explain that in a couple of minutes. Um, Yeah, you've really come under fire, so we're looking forward to hearing more about that. Next to Julian, we've got James, a.k.a. Jimmy Halfcut Stanton Cook. James is a campaigner with Lock the Gate. He's also the founder of Half Cut, which aims to start conversations about conservation. And if, do you want to stand up? If people can't see up the back, I think, I think we need a full pirouette. This is the Half Cut. <laughs> if you haven't, he's really keen to have a conversation with you. That's what the beard's about. We just, he told me earlier that he's potentially sticking with it until 2030. Till the end, uh, yeah, so. Nice and ambitious. And we've also got Nick Abley. So Nick is the Safe Climate Campaign Manager for Environment Victoria. That's one of Australia's leading environmental not-for-profit organisations. And he works on campaigns and policies to reduce Victoria's greenhouse gas emissions and also look at issues like regulating coal mines and pollution. And they've also been really key in some of the transitions in the Latrobe Valley. And last up, we've got Ariane Wilkinson. Ariane is a senior lawyer at Environmental Justice Australia, which is a not-for-profit public interest legal practice. And she advises and acts for communities impacted by fossil fuel projects and the impacts of climate change. And she also told me she's been cooking up lots of new ideas today. (laughs) She said basically that's what she's constantly doing. So to start the panel, we're going to hear from each person. They've got a five-minute presentation. Then we're going to have a conversation. There's a lot of time as well for questions, so please get thinking about them. We don't want any statements. Um, so please, you've got, yeah, like 45 minutes, I think, to think about some questions. And to kick things off, we've got Julian to explain what's going on up here. Okay, so I'm probably going to get sued if I leave this up much longer as a form of abuse. So let's get this started. Um, the play button? Yes, sir. 
Some of Australia's largest businesses are now refusing to provide banking, insurance and consulting services to an increasing number of firms who just support through contracted services to the mining sector and the coal sector in particular. <laughs> now, this was part of a speech, or probably rant is a better way of describing it, given to the, to the Queensland Resources Council on the 1st of November last year, where the man who brought his favourite lump of coal into Parliament and told other MPs not to be afraid, whose government has tried, and successfully I would add, to throw more money, public money at new fossil fuel projects, has announced plans to curtail environmental activism aimed at business. If ever we needed confirmation that campaigns aimed at shifting finance away from fossil fuels were starting to bite, then this was it. A less prominent but equally telling example is when a coal baron like Trevor St Baker complains to the Australian Financial Review that we won't have any more coal power stations in Australia because no bank wants to be seen on the front pages lending to coal. We've recently begun to see the fruits of many years of hard work targeting the financial sector, and I just want to spend these few minutes, I'm going to keep it fairly general, but sharing a couple of thoughts on why this is successful and why it'll be both successful and challenging in the future. The key message I want to make sure I leave you with is that we have friends everywhere. This is a story I've lent heavily on the ABC, as you can tell. Uh, in the ABC this week about a coal miner who was joining grassroots campaigns to protest, to resist new coal projects like the Adani mine. And one of the story's messages is how that we should not be surprised that a coal miner wants to join this kind of campaign and be a climate activist. It is absolutely right, because when four out of five Australians are either somewhat concerned or very concerned about climate change, it's inevitable you will find these people working at banks, working at companies that have been approached with or even might be working with Adani, working in coal mines, working all across the community and the economy in our society. Now, a lot of these people, they're concerned and they're in positions where they can actually capitalise on that concern. So, an apology for people at the back, I'll, I will explain the story. We experienced this last year when the Stop Adani campaign was working to get engineering company GHD out of the Carmichael project, which happened. One of the most effective factors behind the campaign was actually reaching out to and empowering their staff base, both through grassroots activities at GHD's offices and reaching out to them online and you know, offering a, a helping hand, being people's friends, being ready to tap into that sentiment. Now, the company handled this concern among its ranks terribly, which is what the story is about, how the company tried to clamp down on, on any uh, dissent and anti-Adani sentiment, which just fueled this latent concern even further and groups were there to help people raise their voice and become empowered. There's a reason why this government likes quiet Australians, especially on the issue of climate change. It's because when you give quiet Australians a voice, they will tell you that they're frightened about the impacts of climate change and frustrated with the lack of action being taken to deal with it. These people are out there for us to meet and to work with and to support and empower to drive change through their workplaces, communities and in organised activism. The second point, there is a tug of war going on between sensible, concerned people in the corporate sector and a tiny minority of its members and politicians who have a personal interest in seeing climate polluting activities continue and expand. And we're talking about directors and executives 
who are financially incentivised to extract and burn every last drop of oil or lump of coal or cubic foot of gas they can, individuals whose personal wealth would skyrocket from projects like new coal power stations or gas wells or coal mines, people working in finance whose jobs depend on the relationships they have with people working in the fossil fuel sector. Now, they might be the vast minority, but they've built up a lot of power, both social and political. They're well-resourced, organised, and they know how to campaign. Their relationships with politics are tight, evidenced in the role of political donations or the work of lobby groups like the Minerals Council, APIA, or the QRC, who was the audience the Prime Minister was giving a speech to um, earlier on. And they've got people placed in committees on boards of directors, on boards of trustees. And this is why, despite public sentiment, global trends, and even plain economics being well and truly on our side, we're not winning fast enough. They are desperate to keep hold of their power, and the question is, is their desperation for their own personal gain greater than our desperation for a safe climate? I like the tug-of-war analogy because it allows for a really complex and diverse array of actions, and, you know, I'm not trying to pretend this is simple. We need to be everywhere doing everything, but we can boil this down into two basic components. We obviously need to pull harder. We need more people, and we need people with the greatest amount of muscle, as far as the analogy goes, to get behind us and get on our side. But at the same time, we need to peel the fingers away of our opponents, unwind these tight binds between industry, business and government that are keeping this industry entrenched and trying to expand. So what we've done in the past few years in the financial sector, it's helped, it's made a dent. We're starting to do that. And I guess what we need to do in the climate emergency frame is to be taking this sentiment and amplifying it and expanding it everywhere. Because the moment we walk out of this building, chances are you're going to immediately meet someone who is as concerned about you as climate change and wants to do something. And it's our job to do it. Thanks. Okay, uh, good afternoon everyone. My name is James Stanton-Cook, more recently referred to as Jimmy Halfcut. Um, first and foremost, I want to pay my respects to traditional owners past, present and emerging, uh, and any traditional owners with us here today. A little bit about myself. I'm an extremely passionate earthling for the protection and conservation of our natural environment, um, wildlife, people and our climate. Uh, so much so, I actually literally wear the issue on my face 24-7. Uh, Part of that reason why I do that is if you look up here, you can see the beautiful map of Australia. And currently right now, nearly 40% is under coal and gas licences that are active. 50% of the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park is now dead. 51% of the Northern Territory is currently under fracking, which is being spearheaded by Origin Energy, AKA Dirty Energy. And another thing that's really passionate for me personally is deforestation. 50% of our world's forests are gone, 50% of our forests in Australia are gone, which is and why I started a movement called Half Cut, where we raised $255,000, which was matched dollar for dollar, which protected up to 160,000 acres of tropical rainforest globally, which we know is one of our key solutions to storing carbon. And guess what? It's free. Um, so my other half... If it goes across... Yeah. Fantastic. So my other half is I am a coordinator with Lock the Gate Alliance uh, in Sydney. 
And if you haven't heard about Lock the Gate, they have done some incredible works with communities who are fighting back against inappropriate coal and gas projects. Uh, the one you can actually see up here right now, if you've heard of the Northern Rivers with the Bentley effect, this was sort of part of it where communities were the leaders. And that's what I love about Lock the Gate. They focus on the community. You know, they find the leaders within their community and they basically try to help develop skills to how they can take on big multinationals with big vested interests and big deep pockets. Uh, when really these farmers, they're already underfunded. They're having to manage their farms. They're going through drought. They're going through fire. They're going, you know, for, now we've got floods, um, you know, on top of having to take this on. But what's incredible to see with this mobile lock the gate, which this community, you can see, I'm not sure if you can see at the back there, but 94.1% declared that that would go as a go coal-free gas community, which led to then 460 communities across Australia going, you know what, we're doing the same thing. Bugger that. This is not happening on our land. Um, which unanimously, there was 95% from all those surveys that said this is not happening. We declare our communities goes coal and gas free. Really extraordinary stuff. And how that was done was basically by door knocking. Going out, getting to know your neighbour, saying, hey, look, you know this is what's happening and we have no rights and they can just roll in and do this and destroy our underground water. They can, draw, they can destroy our best farming land. Like, this is outrageous. So the power of that led to connection. Big, big problem, but when the people unite in community, there's a brilliant outcome that gets achieved with it and relationships that are bonded for life. So from this door knocking, getting the surveys, celebrating those surveys, sharing it with their local council members, sharing it with their local members of parliament and going, look, this is what we declare. This is our community. We're the constituents. You're going to do this. Um, so a brilliant model. You can find that on the Lock the Gate how-to guide. If you and your area decides you want to go you know, declare, go coal, uh, coal and gas free. Uh, another brilliant campaign that Lock the Gate has been a part of uh, is the Hunter Renewal. So the Hunter is obviously... Well, 37% of all employment is actually within mining. It's quite staggering. Thousands of jobs. And as we are decarbonising our economy away from coal, there's going to be jobs lost. And it could be thousands. If we talk about 37% of that region is in mining in some way, there's a big issue there. So we did a commission report and we actually got fellows over from the US in Kentucky and they were in the same situation. As their mines shut down because of the globe moving away from coal, there was no jobs. They didn't have a plan. They didn't have a just transition, which led huge unemployment. This one fellow had to actually sack thousands of employees, and then weeks later, they ended up sacking him. So what happened with this incredible movement in the Hunter Valley is, again, the lock the gate model. They went out and door knocked. Over 18 months, we door knocked, and we had thousands of conversations. And what was staggering, nine out of the 10 people that actually worked either in the coal industry or knew someone in mining, what did they want? They wanted a path forward. They wanted a just transition. They wanted this to happen. So it just does show that power of door knocking is so incredible and so important because there's like-minded concerned citizens who want to see the change. Uh, and look, the reality with this is, and that led to um, a seat at the table where it brought community in, it brought traditional owners in, it brought in councils, and with the heavy lifting actually being done right now by Singleton and Musselbrook, being hugely underfunded. So, and, and obviously local industry, the vignerons, your fine produce, all these incredible things and assets for Australia that we should be protecting. Um, and basically what was agreed from that, it is, requires investment. So investment, if it doesn't happen now, it's too late once we've diversified from coal. It's too little, too late, too many jobs. You know, who's going to be picking up that bill to sort that out? Uh, and lastly, there's a current campaign going on at the moment, um, Dirty Energy, aka Origin Energy. So if you haven't heard about this, 
Fracking in the NT is now happening, being driven by, Northern uh, by Origin Energy. They are drilling in the wet season. Uh, if this goes ahead at this current rate, this is looking to be the biggest oil and gas basin, one of the biggest in the world. It's outrageous. The traditional owners have been fighting this for years. They don't want it there. They know the impact it's going to have on the Beetaloo Basin. They know the impact it's going to happen to their people and the people downriver. It is outrageous that Origin Energy are out there and they're saying, oh, it's, uh, it's clean gas. There is no such thing. We know there's no such thing. If this pushes ahead, it will literally be the equivalent of building and operating 15 new coal-fired power stations. And that was from the Australian Institute. I mean, that is outrageous. This current time, climate, and they're pushing ahead with this, uh, with the greenwashing is outstanding. Um, and look, what I will just finish up on here is if there's anyone here who's a, involved with council, you're extremely powerful in this movement. Origin have huge contracts with councils. So I need you to find out who your councillors are. If they have contracts with energy, tell them that to get motions passed that you, you know, we do not agree as constituents that this is happening. There's plenty of councils that have declared climate emergencies, even in New South Wales where I'm based. Um, which basically I'm trying to encourage them to say, we need to get this passed, this needs to be real. If not, we need to break those contracts, ditch away from Origin. And lastly, retail. If you are in retail or if you're with Origin Energy, don't feel ashamed. A lot of people don't know that I have conversations with day in, day out, but you are powerful. You can complain, you can tell them that if you continue this inappropriate fracking, you will divest. And right now it's working. We've actually had a 4% in retail decrease since the campaign started last year. And just quickly on that note, this is, an, this is a campaign that is being led by traditional owners. Um, so this is with C, the um, Aboriginal uh, Climate Network. They are leading this. We are allies supporting these traditional owners in this fantastic campaign. So it's a very unique, brilliant campaign which is being led by traditional owners. Um, look, lastly, do you mind holding that for us, mate? Come and see me. If you are with Origin, I want you to sign your pledge. I want you to come and have a chat with me. You're not going to miss me. I'm the only bloke probably walking around with half a beard. So I'd love to get you saying, yep, I'm divesting from Origin uh, because we can't afford to frack the NT for our health, our water, our climate, traditional owners, a whole lot. Thanks very much for having me. Cheers. Thanks. I need a drink after those two very inspiring <laughs> Good day, everybody. Good afternoon. Um, my name's Ariane Wilkinson. Uh, as per the introduction, I'm a senior lawyer at an organisation called Environmental Justice Australia. Some of you might have heard of us. We're not-for-profit legal practice, and we are very privileged to work alongside inspiring campaigners like Lock the Gate and sometimes Market Forces, Environment Victoria. We seek to bring the power of the law to these campaigns, and um, we work on, on a range of things across Australia um, and a lot of work in Victoria. One of I'm here to talk to you specifically about a particular project that we worked on um, commissioned by a group called RSTI a group that's driven by a gentleman called Philip Sutton, who's at the conference and um, speaking at lots of other events. So if you're interested in this particular um, model act or draft piece of legislation, I'm sure you'll be able to find him around the halls to have a bit more of a chat. But um, the thing that's interesting and exciting about this model act is we see these powerful movements that say we want an end to fossil fuels, we want an end to climate damaging activities. 
And sometimes as lawyers, we get to work with people who say, can you tell us what that would look like? If we were actually to rock up to parliament and have a piece of legislation that actively responded to the science, not just a piece of legislation that is politically possible, um, with, with um, great respect to the New Climate Act, we're seeing at a federal level that um, Zali Stegel was just talking about, you know, that's fine, but does it respond to the science? No, it's something that's politically seen as politically possible at a federal level. This piece of legislation has been written um, to see what it would look like if a state or territory government were to actively seek to transition their economy rapidly and to uh, step away from any kind of greenhouse gas emitting uh, activities that um, don't keep, keep us in line with a safe climate. So I should also note that I'm not the lawyer that worked on this drafting um, uh, legislation activity. A colleague of mine, Sarah Brewer, who couldn't be here today, actually worked on it and wrote the act, so I didn't do all the hard work. I don't know if that's going to work. This one? Is it a video? Uh, it's not a video. It's just another slide. Um, so what is it for? It's... It's a draft act that you could enact at a state or territory level that would rapidly transition the entire economy. So obviously we're all here to talk about no new fossil fuels. That's what I tend to do each and every day. I tend to focus on the Adani mine and other massive fossil fuel developments. But as we all know, fossil fuels are really just the start of the problem. What would, we, what would it look like if we transitioned our entire economy? And the act um, creates a mechanism for doing this by establishing a climate restructuring authority, which would be led by the Premier or the Chief Minister in each state or territory. So for those of you up the back, you probably can't see this, um, but this is just a, a, a quick summary of, of what the act does and, and how it does it. So the first thing the act would do would put an absolute ban on any climate damaging activities where we know from technical reports that organisations such as Beyond Zero Emissions have published, there is an ability right now, the technology is available to prohibit those activities and to transition quickly. So once the Act was enacted, um, that would happen within six months and it's your big bads, your exploration for fossil fuels, your fracking, your um, new coal mines, new power stations. I should note that this piece of legislation was seen by Philip Sutton as a first step. So it doesn't deal with all the bad stuff that's currently happening that's damaging the climate. It draws a line in the sand and says, if you're in a hole, stop digging. We're not going to create any new coal mines. We're not going to create any new power stations, um, something that's very topical now in Queensland. So that's one part of the Act. You would have immediate prohibitions on all those different parts of the um, state or territory's economy where we know we could um, transition really quickly. And then the second part of the Act would actually create a process for making sure um, the technical expertise and the investigation of um, methods for transitioning out of all the other kind of greenhouse gas emit emitting activities happened rapidly. So um, there's a list of examples in the Act, but it's set up so that a state or territory government could backfill to talk about the particular activities relevant to their jurisdiction. Steel making, plastic, cement making, shipping, aviation, etc. So um, 
the piece of legislation has uh, a bunch of different principles in it. It's got principles of intergenerational equity, um, so you know, equity for future generations, intragenerational equity, so um, looking at ways, uh, making sure that it's built into the act that the decision makers look at ways to transition where you are actually taking account of uh, different communities and what they need in the transition. And I'll just finish up with, um, when it comes up, a bit of a summary of, oh, am I pressing the wrong button? Thank you. That's all right. I can remember what the slide said. Um, so in terms of um, RSTI's vision and where they might try and roll out this legislation, it's their view that they'd, they're actively working with campaign partners in South Australia at the moment, looking at, um, looking at how they might build the movement to actually support this kind of legislation, working on those states. And there's a bit of a plan to move through Australia. Obviously, Queensland and Western Australia would be left till last because of the reali political realities of those states and their dependence on the kind of activities that we're seeking to ban it outright. So um, for any law or policy nerds in the room who are really interested in reading this um, piece of legislation and how we've imagined what uh, a law that would um, guarantee a transition to a safe climate might look like, um, I've tweeted it uh, on my Twitter thread or if anybody isn't into Twitter, you can come and see me afterwards and I'm happy to email you a copy of the Act and um, put you in touch with Philip if you're interested. So thanks very much. Thanks very much. Thanks everyone for coming out. Uh, my name's Nick. I'm the campaigns manager at Environment Victoria. Uh, if you haven't heard of us, we are not part of the government, even though we sound like the government. We're not Sustainability Victoria. We're not Places Victoria. Uh, we're not Solar Victoria. Uh, sometimes we actually called ourselves Environment Victoria before they all called themselves something Victoria. And sometimes it works in our favour. Uh, actually, it works against us when people are like, why is the government asking me to donate? Um, <laughs> But it does work in our favour when I call someone up, call up a bureaucrat, and it's like, oh, you guys, there was this report I heard about. Would you be able to send that to me? It's like, oh, it's not public, but, you know, in the interest of interagency harmony, I guess I'll send it through. Like, <laughs> Thanks. Um, so sometimes it works. Uh, so Environment Victoria has been involved in campaigns to move Victoria beyond fossil fuels for a very long time. Um, we're deeply involved in the campaign to close Hazelwood over a decade, uh, which finally culminated in 2017 with the closure. Um, and we still have three more very large coal-fired power stations in Victoria, and they all need to close very, very soon. Um, there, you know, there's a room somewhere for a whole bunch of debate about how much carbon budget we have left and how quickly coal-fired power stations need to close to satisfy that carbon budget. I'm not really interested in that conversation right now. If you want to have it, that's great. Um, you know, the, the sort of mainstream uh, analysis, I guess, and what, what a report came out from Climate Analytics uh, late last year on this, basically saying that all of Australia's coal-fired power stations should close by 2030 in order to give us any kind of chance of sticking to 1.5 degrees as an objective asterisk. 1.5 degrees still isn't great. Um, so if you just kind of think about it in that context, how quickly can we close these power stations? So after Hazelwood closed, it was 
fairly predictable that we were going to start thinking about what's the next power station. Your lawn power station is now the dirtiest in the country. It wasn't that much worse than Hazelwood, to be honest. It was almost as bad from an emissions perspective as Hazelwood. Uh, it's the oldest in Victoria. It's the most unreliable in the country. It's owned by Energy Australia and it's in the Latrobe Valley. Uh, so we've been campaigning to press Energy Australia and the Victorian government to make sure that your lawn is closed as soon as possible. We'd like it to close in the next three years. Um, whenever we meet uh, MPs or anyone and we say to them, we think your lawn needs to close and it's going to need to close to do what we've got to do about climate change, they say to us, well, what's going to happen to, like, where do we get the power from? And what's going to, and what's going to happen to power prices? Um, and what's going to happen to the Latrobe Valley and the jobs there? And these are all excellent questions. Uh, you know, I'll, we'll probably get more into this in the, in the conversation. Jimmy's already touched on it as well in the Hunter. You know, there are two transitions that we need to get right to stop climate change. One, well, actually, there's probably three. One is the energy transition. We've got to get that right, and we've got to do it fast. The second transition is the community transition that needs to unfold in places like the Latrobe Valley, like the Hunter. And if we don't get that right, we won't get the energy transition as fast as we need it. So it's a really important piece of the puzzle. Uh, so in response to being asked all these questions about what's it going to do to power prices, where's the energy coming from, we commissioned Reputex, who are very credible energy analysts, to tell us the answers to those questions. Uh, I'm going to give you... Um, we were told we only had like four slides, so I just crammed all my graphs into four <laughs> slides. Um, so apologies if some of them are a bit hard to see. I will explain the key points of each of them, though. Um, so we asked them to say, well, let's say if your lawn closed in three years, how would you do it? What combination of wind, solar, batteries would you need to put in place so that your lawn could close in 2023 and everything will be fine from an energy perspective? As I said, there's still the community transition we need to deal with. So this is the overview of what they found. Um, basically, it is a whole bunch of additional wind. Uh, we've already got a lot in the pipeline in Victoria, but we still need more on top of that, on, to on top of what's being built already. We need a bunch more solar. A lot of that is distributed solar, so rooftop PV. We've got the Solar Homes Program in Victoria, which is going to put solar panels on another 600,000 homes in the next 10 years. Um, on top of that, uh, we have some, a bit of utility solar uh, and a lot of storage. About half the storage that Reputex figured would need to be large-scale storage, so like sort of big batteries of the sort of Elon Musk making bets on Twitter scale. Uh, and the other half of the batteries would be distributed. And some of those distributed batteries could be part of a, a virtual power plant, if people have heard of that. So linked up so that an energy retailer can control the, the, the discharge from those batteries. Um, a lot of this is already underway, but a lot more needs to be put into the pipeline over the next couple of years to be able to enable you want to close. Uh, this chart just shows uh, sort of a, a a year-by-year year evolution of that. Um, so it, it's just kind of showing the existing wind. Uh, I'm going to do this, see if this works. Um, this is the existing wind across the bottom, the amount of wind that's already committed. So you can see that we're already going to double the amount of wind we've got just on what's already being built, already been financed. But we still need quite a bit more wind on top of that over the next couple of years. Uh, this is utility solar. Again, this. Uh, jump quite a bit, uh, and that at the top is storage. Um, so it is a challenge, right? Like, this is not a trivial, oh, well, you know, just close the power station. You know, we are going to need some energy, um, and this is just one suggestion of where it could come from. 
uh, I should just say on the, on the storage question, uh, no time for pumped hydro in a three-year window. If we had said to Reputex 2025, they would have said, oh, well, you know, Snowy Hydro 2.0 and Tasmania Battery of the Nation, there's your storage. But uh, in a 2023 window, it's, it's all batteries. Uh, and then so three questions about consequences. What does this do to reliability? It's absolutely fine. You're not going to be able to read this graph from where you are. Uh, but this basically shows that if you take out your lawns four units by 2023, if you build that replacement supply, you will meet a one in 10 year demand event. Um, they also said we should add new interconnection with other states, but that's just sort of a little bit of a little bit of headspace on top. It's not critical for keeping the lights on. Uh, what does this do to greenhouse gas emissions? Pretty key question for us. Uh, the chart at the top right shows, you can see pretty clearly the moment where your lawn shuts, it drops down about 15 million tonnes in, you know, pretty quickly. Really interesting point that came out of both the Reputex report and a previous report from the Victorian Energy Policy Centre last year. If you build renewable energy in Victoria, you do not reduce Victoria's greenhouse gas emissions. You reduce New South Wales greenhouse gas emissions because brown coal is the cheapest coal power stations to run. And so therefore it actually pushes out the black coal in New South Wales, which is more expensive. This is a real headache for the Andrews government. They're, they love building renewable energy, it creates jobs, but it doesn't actually reduce our emissions, it reduces New South Wales emissions. So if Victoria wants to be serious about reducing our emissions in this state, they've got to deal directly with those emissions from the coal generators, which is a bit awkward for them. Finally, what does this do to power prices? Nothing. So um, Reputex had a scenario where we don't do anything and then your lawn closes in 2032 when they're currently saying they're gonna close and you get a big price spike, just like we saw with Hazelwood. Hazelwood closed, price spiked. But if you build that combination of wind and solar and storage before your lawn closes, you will not even notice a price bump. I'll point to it in a sec. So this, uh, the light blue dotted line is the closure scenario. It's going down and then your lawn closes and it goes and you get a tiny little bump in prices. No one's gonna notice that on their power bills. So the point is we can build the replacement capacity in time in three years for your lawn to close with no impact on power prices with no impact on reliability and a big impact on greenhouse gas emissions. That's just one power station. There's another 17 or 18 on the East Coast. We've got to close them all very, very soon. But I just wanted to paint this picture of just the scale of the tr energy transition required in replacing those fossil fuels. Thanks very much. Okay, great. Um, we'll have time for a slightly shorter um, Q&A, but definitely um, keep your questions going because we'll, we'll open up a bunch of time for that. Thank you all. They're all um, incredibly inspiring and it's really interesting to hear, as I said at the beginning, how you're all you know, operating in your own space and using slightly different levers to achieve a really similar outcome. To start with, we wanted to just to talk a bit about, with all this, what is working with what we're doing at the moment. And one thing that seemed to come up with all of these pretty much was around, um, these are all approaches that really empower either individuals or communities or give them a say in what's happening in, in the absence of overarching policy, like the one that Ariane was talking about. Is that 
is that working? Do you think that is the best way that we should be approaching this transition by, by going like with micro-targeting like that? Sure. Uh, I think we need everything. Um, and what I love about this panel is the diversity of approaches that we're all taking. Um, you know, Environment Victoria works in trying to pressure mostly state governments uh, or state government here in Victoria um, and try to achieve change by raising the bar on policy and programs that state governments roll out. Uh, we do a bit of corporate work as well, but not quite as much. But I love working with Ariane to get thinking about, well, what's, what, is the, what, are the, what can the law do with us? Um, you know, I love the work that Market Forces does. That's why I donate to Market Forces. Um, like, you know, that is really moving the needle. I, I don't think it's right to say there's just one thing that, that we should all do. Um, this is an all-hands-on-deck moment, and we all need to bring uh, the skills or the approaches or the enthusiasm and, and place it wherever it's, it's best. I mean... You know, every time we come up with a campaign strategy, it's actually got you know a whole bunch of different strands. When we were t when we were sort of in the final stages of the Hazelwood campaign, um, you know, there hadn't actually been that many big campaigns in Australia to close a coal-fired power station. But in the last two years of it, we really didn't know how it was going to play out. And so I kind of imagined Hazelwood like this sort of marionette that was being held up by a whole bunch of strings. And we were just trying to cut each of the strings and we didn't really know which one was going to be the one that was really the weight-bearing string. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess that's sort of the, the quick answer is we need all of it. Yeah. Yeah. is really about empowering. Um, yeah, I mean, look, are we on? Yep, yep. Nick's largely said it, but I, I would describe it as it's just an, one of many essential components of a fabric of a successful movement. Um, but I just want to point out that remember, we're going to be out there in a context, we are out there in a context where our opponents are trying to flip that depiction and they're trying to make us disempowered. That's what a lot of the climate denial is about. It's, it's too hard, it's not our problem, it's, it wouldn't make a dent in global emissions, it's all about disempowerment and that's what we're up against. And you know, they will use memes and narratives that try and make us look like we're in the minority. Well, we know that is absolutely the reverse of the reality. Most of Australia is on our side. And by you know, reaching out, tapping into that latent concern, that latent anger, um, we're going to be able to build a level of activism into this movement that is sufficient to overcome the selfish bastards who are trying to drag us towards climate catastrophe for their own personal gain. I'll just quickly add on that. Um Obviously, communities are outraged at the moment. They are furious, so we've got to use that fury right now to engage them to take part and build more leaders within their communities because it's now, it is now uh, to make this happen. Um, and I think adding on to what has already been spoken here is it is building these leaders in the community because we can leave and not come back. We need them to be able to keep that momentum growing make sure that these projects still go ahead, keep on their councils, keep on their local politicians, um, and that's really where it needs to head towards as well, keeping that community empowerment and making sure the power is within the communities. Do you want to ask um, or talk about what do you think is successful, what's happening that is successful? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, what works with having no more fossil fuels... Um, I mean, I mean, everything works. As we've said, we need a multitude of approaches. Um, and, but, but generally, empowering the communities is the most successful thing. We've got a, 
we've got a legislative ban on unconventional gas, on fracking in Victoria. That's written into the law. That got there and that got there through um, um, huge amounts of work by Friends of the Earth campaigners empowering communities and, and EV and others were involved too. Um, so we were very lucky to act for Voices of the Valley, um, who are a group that came together after the Hayeswood Mine Fire Inquiry demanding answers about deaths in their communities from the air pollution. And they're an in, in, incredibly empowered community who've not just um, stood up for themselves and got an inquiry and got a finding that there were deaths in their community from that pollution, but also um, done lots of the hard work of organising to decide what kind of jobs they want in a transition away from dirty coal. So. Um, yeah, empowering local communities, um, giving them tools, giving your yeah, everyday person the tools they need to swap banks, you know, all that kind of corporate and community campaigning is what works. It keeps fossil fuels in the ground. Do you think we can get there without overarching policy? Definitely not. I mean, I mean, in terms of the speed of the transition that we need, that the science says we need that we're all hearing about today, of, co of course you're going to need some kind of something to shift at the at the federal level. As as Jean Hinchcliffe said earlier, um, the young school striker, um, they're gonna something like they're gonna politicians don't lead, they follow. They're gonna have to listen to us, we're gonna have to make them. So absolutely, certainly, but you're never gonna see that happen without the kind of movement and community building that has been talked about today. Nick, in your talk you mentioned that we need, when we're thinking about this transition, there are really two kinds of transitions and the energy transition, and there is a lot of focus on the energy transition. I think there's a lot of focus especially on coal, the transition from coal, not necessarily other sectors of the economy. Um, but with Hazelwood, do you think the community transition was successful there? Because I think that's something, and it, it came up a lot during the last election, and there's probably a lot of lessons that were learnt in the last election, but about the messaging to coal communities and how we, we tell them that this isn't about taking away their jobs and their way of life. Yep. Uh, I just want to quickly touch on the, the energy transition. And, and I, you know, the reason we focus on the energy transition is if you look at Victoria, so 40 to 50% of our greenhouse gas emissions come from electricity usage um, or electricity generation. Uh, but then there's another 35% of our emissions that are associated with other forms of energy. So burning gas for heating, transport, for example. So if you shifted our electricity supply to renewables and then you shifted our other forms of energy consumption to electricity, you're actually reducing Victoria's emissions by about 85%. And then you've just got like agriculture and waste left. So that's sort of the, f that's the reason for the focus on the energy system. Um, the community transition in Latrobe Valley. Um, you know, it has not been perfect. It has not been great for everyone. Uh, it's been better than it could have been. Uh, you know, what is it, a few years now after Hazelwood's closed, uh, the workers who lost their jobs at Hazelwood, 75% uh, of them are now in full-time employment. Um, unemployment rates across the Latrobe Valley are lower than they were when Hazelwood closed. Um, I think property prices have gone up, as an indicator, you know, if that's for whatever barometer of economic activity that provides. Um, you know, so those macro statistics tell one story. Obviously, there are individuals who have not done well out of it. Um, Coal mining is one of those pretty unique things where you can have 
sort of no education beyond high school and be getting paid $180,000 in a job. Like there's not many industries like that in the world or in Australia. Um, and it is unrealistic to think that we can create replacement opportunities or a lot of replacement opportunities um, for many of those workers. So that, that is a challenge. Uh, and the un unions recognise that. Um, you know, I think the best thing that's come out of the Hazelwood closure from a community perspective is that the Latrobe Valley is not going to have the wool pulled over their eyes again. Uh, we, in, six months before Hazelwood closed, but six months before the announcement of Hazelwood closed, I was down in Morwell at an informa community information session being run by Engie, who own it. Uh, and they were saying, oh, no, no, we're going to be here till 2032. And the whole room was like, bullshit, you're going to be here till 2032. But, you know, there were workers at Hazelwood who were taking out mortgages, like getting like loans for expensive cars because they were making 180k a year and they were going to be in this job for another 12, 15 years. So it's that the deception of the companies in pretending that this revolution is not happening to them that is leading to worse outcomes for the community than would otherwise need to be the case. Um, you know, governments are waking up to this. Uh, sorry, I'm banging on a bit, um, but I get pretty excited. <laughs> um, you know, in 2015, I was in a meeting with a, with a bunch of uh, ministerial advisors in the state government, and we were saying to them, look, the writing's on the wall for Hazelwood. Doesn't matter what you guys do anymore. Like, this power station's going to go. You need to go down to Latrobe Valley and start talking to people about how to plan, like, the community transition. And the response was basically, well, if we start talking about the fact that it's going to close, like, it's going to scare the horses. And it's like... Come on, like the alternative. Yeah, like the alternative is to do nothing and have a much worse outcome. Uh, and I think that one of the things Hazel Closure did was that it, it dispelled once and for all the myth that power stations don't close. Even though there'd actually been a bunch of power stations closed before that over the last sort of five or ten years before it, um, Hazelwood was like the big iconic one. And it is now a thing that governments think about that, oh, this industrial facility might not be here forever. Uh, and so more thinking, I think, is going into what's going to happen to your lawn and your Latrobe Valley, you know, over the next 10 or 15, 20 years than went into preparing for Hazelwood. Um, in terms of that, that's a lot about, like, what has been working so far, but there are a lot of obstacles in, the path, in our path going forward. What would you say are some of the major challenges that we face? Uh, in, the, in the climate crisis? In transitioning from coal, especially coal and fossil fuels. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I'll just give, give the lawyer's perspective. I think, I think in terms of driving the transition, there's, there's challenges in that there's not any um, big effective legal levers that we've been able to find um, find and pursue. So um, EJA and the EDOs across Australia are, you know, are in there with the, the legal work fighting the turf war on a, on a kind of project by project basis a lot of the time. But one of the challenges that I'm really interested in is some of the, um, the innovative, they call it kind of new wave climate litigation where you can get some um, bigger strategic legal actions that might have um, a bigger transformative effect. We've seen some successes in America and in Holland with those kind of legal actions. So I think that's more in terms of um, the challenge for lawyers and we try and um, invite and motivate broader parts of the legal profession to think about um, what can we do with the law to, to, um, to move the transition a lot faster. But it's kind of a watch this space at the moment. 
Um, this, uh, but the Hunter region with the Hunter renewal is what I'm reflecting on there. Look, uh, I, that's not my expertise area there, but we have a wonderful experts who are working with the Lock the Gate on that. But the one thing I keep on hearing time and time and again is just how underfunded these councils are and how they have to get funding from the governments to come down into the councils to provide these jobs. To prov and look, as Nick was saying, the, big, the biggest barrier is really are they going to take off, you know, take 80 or you know, 60 grand a year compared to 180 um, and only work, have to work 12 months of the year rather than six months of the year. Like, there is some serious barriers there, but uh, for instance, with the Hunter at the moment, it is the health issues right now as well. It is the coal dust. It is the impact to family health um, and really, you know, washing water when we're in a complete, you know, a drought crisis. We're washing coal and using this fundamental precious resource to wash coal. Um, so look, well, I guess what I'm getting at, it, that is the key element, is finding out how we can find investment for this, uh, where that's pooling from, if it's within tourism, if it's within these other businesses within the Hunter region that decide that they're going to create a roadmap uh, to pull funds together to say, well, we are doing this, meet us halfway. Um, that's you know, where it's sort of even at. We, we need to find something and actually do it very, very fast. Might just add one thing around on the energy side of things is one thing that really I've had my eyes open to in the last couple of months while we've been talking to bureaucrats and decision makers about that Reputex report that we commissioned was just how asleep at the wheel energy decision makers have been over the last 10 years. Like we've got solar farms in northwestern Victoria that actually can't connect to the grid because of grid constraint, of transmission constraints in the area. It's like we had a 20% renewable energy target at the federal level for a decade before that. Like, what did you think was going to happen? And now we, you know, we've got not enough interconnection capacity between New South Wales and Victoria. It's like, what did you think was going to happen? And what have you been doing? It, like, it's actually just genuinely frustrating at how little was done during the 2010s to plan for the fact that we are going to be heading more and more to renewables. At, yeah, yeah, it is. Um, but it, like, it's too late in many ways now, right? Like we need to be getting, closing all of our coal-fired power stations by 2030. But if you listen to the energy bureaucrats and the Australian energy market operator, they're like, well, the quickest we can build this interconnector is gonna be 2027. And it's like, we've got to close like seven coal-fired power stations by then. Like that is too slow. It's like, yeah, well, it takes time. It's like, well, what were you doing in 2010, you know? Ah, sorry, get angry about this. <laughs> Okay, cool. Um, I want to add something yeah, Julian, just quickly. Just, if you guys, financial. if you want to put your hands up um, for some questions, Julian will just answer this and then we'll start coming around to them. Um, on the financial side, super funds. I could, I could name a lot of obstacles that, that we're really keen to shove uh, a lot further down the road on this issue. Super funds are disgraceful. There are about 10 million Australians who are financially connected to Whitehaven Coal, whose, whose retirement savings and the, the health and the prosperity of their retirement savings are based on companies like Whitehaven Coal and Woodside and New Hope continuing to expand a sector that is going to deliver a, a future retirement that isn't even fit to retire into. These, if we talk about asleep at the wheel, they're, they're right there alongside the energy decision makers and they are letting us down both on 
the divestment side. Just this week, UniSuper, who's responsible for managing the super of our academics, our researchers, some of the people leading the, the intellectual charge on climate change, have their money invested in these companies and their super fund thinks it's not their job to do anything about it. There and it's is. outrageous. And we've got one of the biggest managed fund sectors in the world sixth biggest in the world and by 2030 it's likely to own half of most of the listed companies in Australia. They are managing these companies with our money, with our blessing, towards climate ruin. And they're the biggest obstacle that I would say on the finance side. Just on that, there is a case coming up with REST superannuation. There's a 24-year-old in Brisbane who is taking them to court for not planning for that. Do you, do you think that's going to change things in that space? Oh, I, I, yeah, Just briefly, do you absolutely. Think um, it, it's been a, it's been a shock around the industry. It is being discussed throughout the sector and the uh, I guess the legal profession surrounding the financial industry. Basically, a REST super fund member is suing their fund and the trustees for failing to manage climate risk, which has been established through legal opinions. They are obliged to manage climate risk, and REST was yeah there asleep at the wheel not doing a, a job of it at all. I mean, on the, I don't know if you want to add something from the specifics on the legal side. I think all I'd like to add specifically is it's always very effective if you can actually sue someone and get them in court. <laughs> all right, we've got some time for some questions. Yeah, do you want to? Yeah, I'll stand up. <clears throat> Michael Gunter, today representing uh, Climate Action Moreland. My question is for Nick Abberley. Uh, uh, the question is, uh, you mentioned Reputex in your talk uh, and their modelling. Uh, did their modelling take any account of um, vicious or zealous demand management in terms of uh, getting rid of the cheap nighttime tariffs and uh, uh, reducing the voltage at night so that the system demand drops quite significantly at night? I know you love the dropping the voltage thing, Michael. Um, <laughs> they did not take account of that. Uh, the assumption they made around demand management uh, was simply to take the most aggressive of AEMO's uh, demand forecasts. Um, so, you know, that was sort of the thing they, pumped, they pl plugged into their modelling. Um, we, were, we were hoping to get into a bit more detail on the demand side. Oh, and they've bu they built in... Um, I think 160 megawatts or so of demand response at peak times to bring the, the peak demand periods down. Um, but that was about it. I mean, at the outset of commissioning this modelling, we had like this hyper detailed series of things that we wanted them to put into the modelling. And then they're like, what's your budget? It's like, um, <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just take off that whole second page of, of details. Yeah, like we wanted to like, wanted to look at like weather traces, like, you know, look at how, like how wind and solar resources overlap and, get into more detail around demand reduction, but couldn't afford it. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, the, the report's up on our website. If you just Google Environment Victoria Repitex, you'll find it straight away. Cool. Yep, okay. Um, hi, my name's Theo Boltman. I'm representing myself. Um, to execute these renewable power plants, do you think education about this and its mark on our future is necessary in schools, in particular in Victoria? It's, it's not gonna hurt. Um, <laughs> Like, I'm actually amazed how, and I think this room is going to be a real uh, um, outlier from this data set, but I'm um, constantly amazed by how low the literacy is in the community around where our electricity comes from. Like, hands up if you've got 
smart friends who care about climate change but aren't really doing much about it. Yep. Seriously, ask them how much of our electricity comes from coal and you know, they'll have no idea. Like I remember having a conversation with, my, with one of my best mates and he, he just had no idea where our energy comes from. Um, so on the one hand, you know, the more people understand the problem and what's causing the problem, like that, that's got to be better. Um, but at the same time, people don't really like thinking about energy, right? They just want to like flip a switch and they want the lights to come on. So I'm kind of torn on that. I mean, on the one hand, you know, people need to know that burning coal causes climate change and that climate change ruins societies. Um, but at the same time, if we can just kind of make it all easy and a thing that they actually don't have to worry about, then that's going to be great. And we're approaching a point where it is going to be, I mean, the estimates on this vary, but, you know, some of the sort of middle mark estimates around 2025, it's going to soon be cheaper to build a new solar farm or a new wind farm than it is going to be to continue operating an existing coal-fired power station. And once that happens, like all bets are off about how this energy revolution unfolds, whether people know what's going on or not. Um, so yeah, I guess the, the short answer is more information is, a more informed population is always better. Um, but you know, we've been trying to inform the population for a long time, it's bloody hard work. I'm just gonna quickly add two quick points onto that. Uh, Origin Energy do a lot of greenwashing in schools. So if you've got solar at your school, you might have that with Origin. We can't find that out. So the only way to find out is through students and parents and the PNC. And the second thing is that we've found out with teachers talking about super before. First State Super, which is within the department, they actually are one of the biggest investors with Origin Energy fracking in the Northern Territory. So straight off the cuff there, you've got teachers who might want to be supporting School Strike for Climate Action Kids. I've had them reach out to us personally. So there are two things there. You know, the greenwashing on Origin, web, Origin Energy's website is horrendous. They've actually got programs for kids to basically indoctrinate them to come and do, you know, come up with ideas and inventions uh, when the reality is they've, they're fracking your future, man. So find that out. anyone can answer this and it's about South Australia and what are the lessons from South Australia where there's bipartisan support for investment in renewables and large-scale battery and no one's talked about South Australia today. Uh, I reckon a quick answer on that is uh, when politicians realise that building renewable energy is going to bring down power prices, uh, people will like that. Um, you know, the, the South Australian Libs were quite a way behind South Australian Labor on renewables. Uh, they were pretty quiet about it. The South Australian Libs going into the state election in 2017 or whenever they had their state election. Uh, but then after the election, they just essentially adopted most of the policies of the outgoing Labor government because they realised they were on a winner. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and I think we're starting to see the early signs of a shift on that here in Victoria. Uh, really interesting to see Michael O'Brien come out during the bushfires, actively saying, like taking that moment to actively say, we need to do more about climate change. We as a party. Yep. So Matt Keane in New South Wales, we've got the... Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, not, no one, not, not perfect. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, getting there. Uh, also in Tasmania, we've had um, the new Liberal Premier actually making himself the Minister for Climate Change uh, and saying it's a, it's a government priority. Like, we are seeing a real change because smarter Liberal politicians are seeing that it is electoral kryptonite to be as backward as they have been on climate change. 
with a few exceptions. I've got two questions. One is about um, the export fossil fuel industry, which I imagine has huge co um, contracts going off into the future for I don't know how long. What can be done about that? And the second is about our federal government's um, uh, saying to Victoria, you don't get money for your projects unless you start fracking. And also I hear that they were trying to muzzle market forces. And I was interested, interested in your comments. Exactly, that's how you know you're winning. Um, I'll start there and then work back. We don't know what the government will do, but they will do something. We know what their intention is, and their intention is to drive us out of business. And we're not just talking about market forces, we're talking about probably pretty much this whole panel and as many groups as they can actually uh, get a hold of. And they did that in the last term and the term before that and every other opportunity they get. So part of what we're going to need to be doing is getting out there and showing the community how bloody incredibly important and awesome climate activism is and how necessary it is. So we're not, look, <laughs> we're doing more campaigns now than we were before Morrison's speech. You know, we, we just think, thank you very much, feather in our cap, good government wants to come after us, we're doing the right thing. Um, and I think it's helpful when you've got a government that's just so out to lunch on climate change. It actually helps to create distance between them and some of the targets that we have on the financial sector side because it's dangerous to be seen too close to that absurd narrative. So there are opportunities in that as well. I don't want to ramble on about that. Um, exports. So I'd just revert back to what I was starting to say before about institutional investors. Um, we're talking about exporters like uh, Whitehaven, um, like the sort of... Mitsubishi-led alliances. Um, these are companies that are owned and are getting their, their business plans ratified year in, year out by the people who manage our retirement savings. Probably not all of our retirement savings because we're a bit more aware and have moved to other super funds, but Australians' retirement savings. And these funds need to be talking to companies about how they're going to pull their money out or they're going to work with these companies to wind them up in a timescale and in a manner that is consistent with meeting the goals of the Paris Agreement and gives an opportunity to, like we've been discussing with the energy transition, there's the financial transition, there's the corporate transition as well. And we need investors who own these companies on our behalf to be working with the companies to start planning for how do we make sure we don't just encounter a massive shock and all of a sudden people are being laid off and all of this wealth is destroyed. How do we hold on to the, the wealth that is there so it's not lost? Because it's going to be lost by all of us, either through the, the public sector having to make up for um, handouts or through you know, covering, covering up for um, remediation costs that aren't met, or it'll be us via super funds who just do their shirt on companies that they should have known that were going to lose their value. So that's the kind of engagement we need. If a company like Whitehaven, for instance, it's a coal company, it's only, it only ever wants to be a coal company, its business strategy is based on a scenario where we get to three to four degrees of global warming. Our super funds need to bugger off out of that company right now. Cool. Um, just lastly, we're just going to wrap it up. I've just got one last question. The, obviously, we're at the Climate Emergency Summit and the framing of this is around a newfound sense of urgency and um, Paul Gilding this morning was talking about a lot of existing campaigns and that, you know, really should put the fire under them and there should be this renewed sense of urgency. How, do you guys see that that would change if there was a climate emergency declared or even just that thinking? 
would it change the way that you approach this in your campaigns or would it give that, yeah, that newfound sense of immediacy and urgency? I don't know. I wasn't there this morning. All I can say is that from what we do at Market Forces, we look at the state of the world and what needs to change and work back from that to design campaigns that are aimed at achieving as much as we possibly can towards what needs to be done and the transition that needs to be created without breaking ourselves. And then as we do that and we get better and we build our capacity, we can do more and more and more and each year we come back and our objectives and our ambition gets closer and closer to matching the trend line of change that we need to avoid catastrophic climate change and, and in line with the goals of Paris. But we're not there still. We just keep pushing our work as far as and as fast as we possibly can. And I think maybe a combination of firelighting and reaching out and embracing some of the others who are out there just churning themselves up day in, day out to try and make change happen is maybe going to help the whole movement um, get closer to impact at scale. This is a concept I wasn't familiar with until a couple of years ago. Is uh, It's called the Overton window. Uh, I don't know how many of you are into that. Um, and I think what we're doing, you know, the work that all of us try to do uh, is around shifting that Overton window. And the Overton window is this idea that there is a window within which uh, public debate can happen. And if you're too far this way, you're considered out of touch and radical. And if you're too far this way, you're considered out of touch and radical. And on climate change, we need to be pushing the leading edge of that window further and faster than where it currently is. But we also need to be pushing the, 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 the laggard edge of that window as far as we can as well. And so, you know, different organisations will have different types of campaigns that, you know, and the more we talk about climate emergency and the school strikes and Extinction Rebellion and these movements that are just snowballing over the last couple of years, that is really opening up the space on that leading edge and that's really critical because it's it's making people think about this it it's opening up a new front that three years ago wasn't really thought possible and it means that it's much easier to then push that that laggard side even further and so that's where politicians will be as Ariane was saying like you know politicians are followers not leaders and so if that window starts shifting they're going to shift with it do you want to... I know you have some issues with the framing. Uh, well, I, I just... Just broadly, maybe one, if you want the One quick urgent. thing is, um, you know, if like perfect examples of politicians being followers, not leaders, our Federal Labor Party has got behind climate emergency. Our Federal Labor Party unequivocally supports Adani and unequivocally supports coal exports and is right in behind the drug dealers' defence. So, I mean, it's up to all of us in this room to say thank you very much for, for supporting this view, but we're going to tell you what it really means. So, you know, we're all here to, I think, insert climate justice and meaning and greenhouse gas emission reductions into people who would claim this language. Um, I guess separately, um, in, terms of, in terms of talking about it as a climate emergency, um, I come from the perspective of someone who's um, um, Australian but also Madewa from Papua New Guinea and um, coming from um, a, a family of colour and a family that suffered under racism and suffered under white colonialist rule, I think that we always have to think about what does emergency framing mean for communities of colour and marginalised people, um, you know, and 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 do we want do we want the emergency to be something where um, those who always tend to be oppressed by emergency powers 
are going to get um, trodden on. So I don't, I don't think there's anyone in this room or in the climate movement who who wants that. So I think we should always keep um, the voices of our First Nation leaders at the at the forefront of the movement and and um, think of issues of equity and justice uh, amongst us um, really, really at the forefront in our hearts as we ask for urgent action. Uh, can you reiterate more on that, that yes, it must be with our traditional owners really taking this space. But we've talked about divestment. I mean, we're probably in a room of people here who have all divested their bank, their super or their electricity. It's really, really important to check that out with the electricity. A lot of people tend to not even know that. But even interestingly enough, when you're talking about that window before, Nick, you know, we predominantly weren't working with farmers that are quite conservative. And now there's this really great window where there is now the miners fighting the farmers and the farmers taking on the miners. There is actually this space now where they don't want this. So I think that window is shifting and more it's happening. It's just got to happen a lot faster. And our role as community members is to have these conversations every day with every family member and find out if they've divested, if they're, you know, who their bank's with, who they're super with in electricity. And uh, it's one very tangible, quick, achievable approach they could do today or tomorrow. Going back to that question of what could come back up, divestment, 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 100%. Great. Um, can everyone please join me in thanking these amazing panellists? This was a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit.